Uh, This morning, we are going to begin the third major section of the book of Hebrews. People break up the book of Hebrews differently, but most people have uh, a central teaching section on the priesthood, the high priesthood of Jesus Christ, which we just ended last week. So now we're going to be transitioning into this third major section. It's going to take us all the way through the end of chapter 13. And basically, what we just finished about the high priesthood of Jesus Christ You heard me say this, and and Kevin and other people who have preached have said this too, but one of the ways you can think about the letter to the Hebrews is that it is, um, that the author, the inspired author, is exalting Jesus Christ in order to exhort Christians, in order to encourage and warn and and, and exhort these, these Hebrew Christians in the first century church and us as well. So exalting Jesus to exhort Christians. So really the last five chapters that we've looked at have been exalting Jesus as our great high priest. That's not a category most of us think in terms of when we think about Jesus Christ as a high priest, because priesthood and sacrifice and the tabernacle and all these things seem so foreign to us. So it's been good to to walk through that the last couple months. But now we're going to move to this great section on exhortation And basically, in light of the new covenant that Jesus Christ has inaugurated through his sacrificial death on the cross and his high priestly service in heaven, we have this great new covenant, and there is every reason to be excited about that and to be encouraged by that. And that's where we're going to start looking at today. Uh, Today's passage, and you'll notice this as we go through it, if you've been to any of the previous sermons, it borrows heavily from the language of the past five chapters. So a lot of the language about uh, different aspects of the tabernacle and the sacrifices and the priesthood, you're going to see those show up. So this is truly a transitional passage that we're looking at today as kind of a hinge between that that teaching section and then where we're going to look at for the rest of the uh, next two months. Um, and then again, I wanted to point this out too. Uh, this is the, there, there have been other sections of exhortation in the letter to the Hebrews. Y'all know that. I mean, we've already seen language of draw near and some of these other aspects of exhortation. But this is by far the most potent of all the sections of exhortation in this great letter. This is both in terms of its warning and in terms of its encouragement. It is by far the strongest exhortation. And honestly, and I'll just share this with you, in preparing for this, I have been incredibly challenged and at the very same time, incredibly encouraged. And I think that's exactly what the Holy Spirit intended when he inspired this author to write these words 2,000 years ago. So I hope, that's my prayer, is that you guys would both be challenged, but also greatly encouraged. Deal? All right, that's what I'm hoping for us today. Um, <laughs> uh, I know some of y'all grew up in the 80s. Um, if you're, and, and certainly some of y'all lived through the 80s, if not grown up in the 80s, but if you're a child of the 80s like me, then you probably remember, maybe it was here for Lindsay and Martine, you probably remember uh, these cheesy motivational animal posters that were hanging in like the counselor's office or the front office at your elementary school in the 80s. Do you guys remember these? So by far my favorite, right, the the hang in there kitten, right, that was my favorite motivational poster that was hanging in my guidance counselor, if we have such a thing, uh, the front office at my school, it's the hang in there kitten, I think we actually have a picture of the hang in there baby, that's the hang in there kitten uh, for everybody, this launched the revolution that we now know as cat memes on the internet, Uh, but this was it, the hang in there kitten, and you know, I never felt particularly encouraged by this, and 
And I don't know if it's the look of utter despair in the face of the kitten, uh, or if it's just that a fall seems inevitable. Doesn't a fall seem inevitable? And not just any fall, but judging by the clouds in the background, it's going to be a really long fall, and things are going to get messy for this hang in there kitten. So I was never really encouraged by that. Uh, but I think this poster raises, as we're introducing this sermon, this, this, this passage, I think it raises a great question for us today of how are we, as followers of Jesus Christ, going to persevere in this life? How are we going to hang in there when in life a fall seems inevitable and oftentimes you can't even see where you're going to land? How are we going to hang in there? How are we going to persevere? That's what we're going to look at today. The fact is, all of us, every single person in this room, is facing or will soon face or have faced really, really difficult, I mean, gut-wrenching circumstances in life. I don't think anyone would come up here, especially you adults, and argue that you haven't experienced some, some really difficult stuff in this life. That's a given, okay? We're not promised a life free from the difficulties and the struggles. And honestly, we're really tempted in those moments and in these seasons, and just in life in general sometimes, we're tempted to let go, we're tempted to give up. We're tempted to give up on a friend, a friendship. We're tempted to give up on an enemy, it just seems there's intractable differences, that there can never be reconciliation. We're, we're, we're tempted to give up on a spouse. We're tempted to give up on a child. We're tempted to give up on our own life at times. We're tempted to give up on our ministry to others that God has placed us on this earth for. And ultimately, folks, in all these areas, we're tempted to give up on God. That's the temptation that we all face. And You know, like the hang in there kitten on this poster behind me. That's going to show up throughout, so get used to it. Um, Folks, we're going to need some help if we're going to hang in there. We're going to need a lot of help. And that's exactly what today's passage is all about. Here's the big idea for today. And kids, you can get this too. We can hang in there as long as we have faith and hope in Jesus Christ. Kids, if you're wondering, adults, if you're wondering, can I hang in there? I I guarantee you, unflinchingly, I will look at you in the face and say, you absolutely can, but it's going to take faith and hope in Jesus Christ our Lord. And that's what we're going to look at. So, in order to hang in there, we need to have both faith and hope. First of all, let's look at faith, this first section of our passage. Let's look at the fact that we need faith in Jesus Christ in order to persevere. Our passage begins with the foundational faith that leans on Christ and looks Christ-like. It leans on Christ in terms of its content, who he is, what he's done, and it begins to look more and more Christ-like in doing so. So in order to hang in there, our faith must lean on Christ. We must be dependent upon him. We must lean on who he is, his identity, his person. And we must lean on what he has accomplished as our great high priest. The author is going to build on all of his exhortation in this letter is going to be built on these foundational truths about Jesus Christ, who he is and what he's accomplished. So starting in verse 19, 
Therefore, brethren, since we have confidence to enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way, which he inaugurated for us through the veil, that is his flesh. And since we have a great high priest over the house of God. So in verses 19 and 20, we are reminded of what Christ has accomplished for us. His sacrificial death. Anytime you see the blood of Christ or it talks about his flesh, it's often referring to his sacrificial death on the cross for us. So his sacrificial death, what did it do? It opened up what the author calls a new and living way by which we have been granted access into the very presence of our holy God in the Holy of Holies in his heavenly tabernacle. We looked at that over the last few weeks. We've been granted access through his sacrificial death. And in Christ, we can and should have ultimate, absolute confidence to approach God's throne in prayer and worship. We as priests can approach the throne of God. And we saw this back in in chapter 4 as well. We can approach the throne of God with great confidence. Not shrinking back, not, not thinking, oh, who am I to stand in the presence of God? We say this all the time with communion. It's not the fact that you're so inherently holy, that I'm so inherently holy. What gives us the right to celebrate what communion stands for, what gives us the right to come before our holy God in his very presence through prayer and worship is the sacrificial death of Jesus Christ on our behalf. And that should both be humbling on the one hand and incredibly encouraging on the other hand as well. In verse 21, we're reminded of who Christ is. He is our great high priest who is over, it says, the house of God or the household of God. I love that, which includes all Christians, both living and deceased. We are part of this family of God, this household of God over which Christ has authority and leadership. So perseverance requires a faith that leans on Christ, on who he is, and on what he has accomplished for us. As we hang in there, our faith will also look more and more Christ-like. Now, this is just a fact of the Christian life, guys. As we depend on Jesus, our lives will begin to look like the life of Jesus, who depended upon the power of the Holy Spirit and depended ultimately upon the will of the Father. And so as, as we look more and more like Christ, so too will we be more and more dependent on God. It's beautiful. It's, it's like if you go back to John 15 with that wonderful analogy of the vine and the branches. It's like a vine, and, and we are, are these branches that through abiding in Christ and through trusting in Him, we can persevere, and through our perseverance, we bear spiritual fruit. The Holy Spirit within us, the life of Christ in us, produces this this wonderful spiritual fruit for the good of others and for God's glory. In verses 20 to 25 in our passage, we see this this incredible, and we could camp out on this for weeks, but we see this incredible threefold description of what a fruitful life of perseverance. Guys, a fruitful life of perseverance doesn't look like that. Okay, sometimes it feels like that. But what we're called to, the life that we're called to in uh, denying ourselves, taking up our cross, and following Jesus Christ, I'm going to tell you what it looks like. Starting in verse 22, listen for these three things. He says, based on all this wonderful truth about God's grace in Christ, he says, Let us, therefore, draw near, that is to God, with a sincere heart in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience 
It gets back to that priestly uh, language from the Old Testament. Having our hearts sprinkled clean, so it removes that guilt and that shame of sin, that consciousness of our sin. And it also says, in our bodies washed with pure water. And then in verse 23, let us hold fast the confession or the profession of our hope without wavering. Some translations say unswervingly. I love that. For he who promised is faithful. And then 24, and let us consider how to stimulate or spur on one another to love and good deeds, not forsaking our own assembling together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. That's what a fruitful life of perseverance looks like in Christ. So here we see it characterized by three lettuces, right? Not lettuce like you put on your hamburger, but let us. We see three of them in here. So the first let us is a command to draw near to God. It's a command to draw near to God. And again, our access to God, people, is based on the finished work of Jesus Christ. It's done. He said from the cross, it is finished. And that's what our access to God is based on, that finished work. His sacrificial death has, and you see in the language of the passage, it has purified us, it has perfected us so that we can stand in the presence of our holy God. We've been sprinkled clean. We've been washed, purified. And therefore, we are commanded to draw near to God. If he's done this great thing for you to have access to his presence, why, why, why wouldn't we take him up on that? Why wouldn't we stand in the presence of God? And so he commands us, draw near to God with sincerity and the assurance that comes through faith in Christ. Okay, the second let us is a command to hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering. Guys, this is not hope and hope itself. This is not wishy-washy, fluffy white cloud hope that has no basis, okay? That's the kind of hope we get from the world. This is a hope that has definite content. In fact, that's what it's alluding to, is the content of our hope that we have to hold on to, that our hope in Jesus Christ is something that we hold on to, and it's our profession, it's our confession to the world, We live in a a world full of hopeless people, so we have to hold fast to our confession, he says. And and we're going to talk about this in a second, in the second half of the passage, but for now, it's just important to realize that our hope is, the content of it, is in the great promises of God that we inherit through Jesus Christ our Lord, through faith in Christ. That's our hope, these incredible promises that God has made to us, these new covenant promises that we have in Christ. Our hope is ultimately founded upon the faithfulness of God to keep his promises. Why should you be hopeful? Because God is faithful. That's why. Okay, the third lettuce is a command to consider how to stimulate or spur on in some translations or provoke or stir up one another to love and good deeds. And this refers to uh, this idea of consideration. It refers to careful consideration, thoughtful attention, and deep concern. Careful consideration, thoughtful attention, and deep concern. Do we think of each other as brothers and sisters in Christ in this way? Do we consider one another in this way? And specifically, we're to carefully consider how to literally provoke 
our fellow Christians to love others in a way that leads to good works. Isn't that beautiful? It's like this righteous provocation, this righteous stirring up of one another. Uh, A lot of times that that stirring up language uh, has a negative reference in Scripture. But this, it's, it's, it's a positive thing. We're meant to kind of mess with each other and kind of coax each other out of this spiritual malaise that can set in so easily in this life. And you guys know that because it happens. It happens to me too. And that's why we're to do this with each other, okay? And, and this is involved, uh, it involves, as we see in the, in the context, it involves encouraging one another, fellow Christians, especially, the author says, based on God's promise and, and some in, interpreters see this in terms of the destruction of Jerusalem. I'll be honest with you, there is some debate on what uh, uh, this, this uh, passage is talking about. But in regard to this specific uh, day that's drawing near, I think this is the day of the Lord. I think this is the return of Christ. And so in light of the fact that very soon, people, I know it doesn't feel like that, but we're at least 2,000 years uh, closer to Jesus Christ returning than when he left, Okay. So very soon, Jesus Christ will come back. And that is, that is what Scripture refers to as the day of the Lord, this great event. And as we see that day drawing ever nearer, we should especially encourage one another, right? And the opposite, and this is so important in here, and I could do a whole sermon on just this phrase, uh, but the opposite of let us consider is what? I'll tell you. It's let me check out. What's the opposite of following this command to, that let us consider is let me check out, let me sidestep, let me draw back, let me fall away. And that's ultimately a rejection, not just of Christian community, but it's a rejection of Christ. You can't reject the body of Christ, the church, and not reject its head. Okay? To sum up the first part of our passage, in order to hang in there, we must lean on Christ through faith. And as we do, our perseverance will produce the fruit of Christ-likeness in our lives for God's glory and for the good of others. The other day, uh, my brother and his family were in town. They were staying with us. And my mom graciously rented a couple ski boats. And we went out on Lake Austin. And we had just kind of a fun family lake day. And how the boats ended up, I ended up, uh, my boys went together. And then I had my six-year-old nephew, Liam, uh, on the intertube that was being pulled at uh, very high speeds, it felt like, uh, at times. Uh, but I had kind of my arm around him, and he's kind of a little guy, and uh, he had a blast. The kid is just all about risk-taking and everything else, so, of course, I get stuck with him. Uh, I'm not the risk-taker on the back of boats. That's not me. I'm not that guy, but I was that guy that day. And so I was with Liam, and... Uh, I think one of the reasons he had such a good time is most of his body was on the inner tube. (laughs) Right? Like, he was bouncing and having fun. Everything below my belly button was dragging in the lake water. And you can imagine how much body there is of me to drag behind a boat at 30-whatever knots or whatever they'd say in boating language. Uh, I wasn't so lucky as he was. Um, And so he, they taught, they said, they taught you three things. Go faster, go slower, stop. That was it, okay? So he just learned the first one. And so the whole time, I've got my arm around him, so he's free to do whatever. So he's just like, yeah, yeah, you know? And the guy's like, cool, the little kid wants to go faster. And, uh, 
I could, I was so strained in my arms holding on to those things, being drugged in the water, I couldn't even muster the strength to get my hand up to say stop. Like I just held on for dear life. Uh, I think everyone on the boat, uh, Stacy was on the boat, my kids were, I think they all could see like the exhaustion in my face. They're like, this, he's not having a good time. And so eventually the, the captain stopped the boat and kind of reeled us in, you know, and brought us up into the boat. And had he not stopped, I would not have been able to hang on. I mean, even 30 more seconds, I would not have been able to hang on to that thing. And if I had slipped off, my six-year-old nephew, who doesn't have a whole lot of body mass to him, he would be thrashed around like a rag doll on the wake and on the waves. I mean, boats were screaming past us. There's all these, I mean, he would have just flown. You know, he probably would have had a good time, but maybe not the safest thing, right? So a lot like my experience on the inner tube, I'm sure everyone here has felt the strain of circumstances. You felt that drag, that strain uh, emotionally, maybe physically, financially, spiritually, certainly. You've probably felt that strain of circumstances. And what comes along with that is the temptation to let go, to, to relieve the tension, to relieve the strain and let go. And many of us also, especially as, as parents, I think of this with, with Stacy and I, we have our arm around somebody, maybe some bodies. And if we let go in this life, if we give up, it's not just us that are going to slip off into the wake. It's going to be all those ones, little ones that we've got our arm around. When we're on the verge of letting go, I need you to hear this because I don't want this to be a self-effort sermon because it's not. But we're on the verge of letting go in any given circumstance in our life. And folks, when we do, it's just a matter of time before they fall. We can't hang on by our own strength. And if we try, we will fall at the worst possible time sometimes and they'll go flying, okay? That's part of what being a community is. Not just a family with parents and children, but a church community, a church family. And that's why we all need Christ. He never let go of God. I love the Gospels because I love the story of how Jesus Christ never let go in the, in the worst imaginable circumstances with the most strain you could possibly imagine. The Garden of Gethsemane, sweating drops like blood. He never let go of God. And you know what? And we see this in the book of Acts that we're going to transition to with his followers after his ascension. Not only did he never let go of God in his earthly ministry, he never lets go of us. Never does his group grip loosen on us. He's not trusting in you and me to hold fast our grip on him, okay? He's not trusting in us. He's exhorting us through this very passage to hold on tight to him and that he's going to hold on tight to us and never let go. To trust in him, to trust that he has us, and that he'll never let us slip. We simply can't hang in there in our own effort unless we're hanging on to Christ by faith. And then it really becomes about his strength, his power. And this brings up, I think, an extremely important point of application. I'm going to dwell on this a little bit because I do think it's important. And we see this in our passage. One of the ways that we express our trust in Christ. Now hear me on this. It's going to blow your minds. One of the ways that we express our trust in Christ, our dependence upon Christ, is by entrusting our lives to other Christians. 
One of the ways that we show our dependence upon the head is by interdependence within the body. And that's just true. He's placed us as members of his body, the church, in local churches so that we will live interdependently for his glory and for our good. So it raises the question, are you being tempted to forsake the meeting together, to, to let go and to drift away from the church? Not just the body, but the head as well. And, and it begins in subtle ways. You guys know this. I've felt this. You've felt this at different times. It's so subtle, right? You stop sharing your struggles. You stop asking for prayer from others. You stop sharing your hurts and your hopes and your passions and your questions. And you stop asking people to intercede for you. You stop contributing your time and your money and your talents to a local body of believers, a church family, to to bless them. You stop attending groups, uh, worship services, other church events, right? It's important to understand that Jesus commands us not just to persevere, folks, but to persevere together in biblical community as a local church. He He doesn't just say, hang in there. He says, hang in there together. If we don't have the church to encourage us in our faith, Who will? Is the world going to come alongside you in that? No. If we don't have the church to provoke us lovingly to love and good deeds, then how will we remain faithful in our mission that Christ has called us to? If we don't have the church to know us and to care for us, to know where we're hurting, to know where we're vulnerable to spiritual attack and temptation, If we don't have the church to know us and to care for us, then who will be there to notice and to respond to that look of exhaustion and strain in our eyes and in our voice? You need the church, every single person in here that's a follower of Jesus Christ. And the church needs you. If you're a member of Wayside, we need you. Like Jesus doesn't arbitrarily put You know, there's no like spiritual appendix or tonsils or something like you have a place in a body of believers to function for 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 their benefit, but also for yours as well. You need the church and our church needs you. So if you feel that tug to let go, to give up, you feel the strain of life, you feel the spiritual attacks. And you you want to give up. Church is one of the ones that gets on the chopping block in our culture, right? But here's what I would challenge you to do when you feel that tug. Is just try and get your hand up. Just try and get your hand up. Just say stop. Like, hey guys, I need some help over here. And if you'll do that, then I promise that myself, our, our elder team, our, our women's team, our church family will look in your face and try to look for those evidences of the strain and the exhaustion and come alongside you in that. You know what strangers do? They see exhausted people at bus stops and they just get on their bus and go to wherever they're going. Okay, that's not how the church works. When you see the sins and the strains and the hurts, you come alongside. That's what we're called to in Christ. 
And that's how we persevere together. So in order to hang in there, we need faith in Christ for our present circumstances. But as we've already seen in our passage, our faith always also informs our hope for the future. You can't have faith in Christ and not have hope for the future. So let's turn to that in the last part of our passage. In order to hang in there, we need to have hope in Christ. The, the rest of our passage, this section on hope, is divided up between, I, I want you to feel the weight of this because it's there, a very difficult challenge section, a very difficult warning section, and then the other part is a very encouraging reminder. So let's look at those two things in light of our hope. The author explains that unfaithfulness will ultimately be judged. Our unfaithfulness will ultimately be judged. This is true, okay? But he also then exhorts, encourages his readers with the promise of future rewards for remaining faithful to Christ, something we don't teach and preach on enough in the church. There are rewards awaiting us for a life of faithfulness, okay? So first we see the prospect of judgment for unfaithfulness. We need to look at this. This is the fourth and and the strongest warning in the letter to the Hebrews. Starting in verse 26, for if we go on sinning willfully, After receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a terrifying expectation of judgment and the fury of a fire which will consume the adversaries. Anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the testimony of two or three witnesses. How much severer punishment do you think he will deserve who has trampled underfoot the Son of God and has regarded as unclean the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and has insulted the Spirit of grace? For we know him who said, Vengeance is mine, I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people. It is a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of the living God. There are no two ways around it. Guys, like that, that is a hard passage. And we're meant to feel the weight of that. The original readers were meant to feel the weight of that. In verses 26 through 29, the author describes the temptation to reject God's grace. Guys, when we reject Jesus Christ, when we reject the truth of the gospel, we are rejecting God's grace. God has made a way for us to come out from under judgment and he poured out his wrath towards sin on his own son in our place so that we could have a new and living way to access to him, to be made holy. And when we reject what he's done for us, his, his grace, uh, we are tempted to do that. And, and so to go on sinning willfully, I think, uh, we, we t- we, I think of something like addiction, like turning to drugs or or alcohol or something like that constantly and and having this habitual sin. But it's really, that's not what it's talking about. In the context, it's a state of unbelief that means something akin to raising your fist against God in defiance. Sinning willfully. Go on sinning willfully. It's kind of like doing this, shaking your fist at God. It's, It's ultimately, it's a rejection of God's grace. And this brings up a question that we've discussed before. Is this talking about eternal condemnation? Is that what this is talking about? Or is it talking about something else? It seems like the author is speaking of believers. Doesn't it? I mean, look look at the phraseology here. It says, uh, they received the knowledge of the truth. That is like they received the full knowledge of the truth. Okay? Uh, And then it says they were sanctified by the blood of the covenant. Like these sound like legitimate believers. Okay? 
but since the Old Testament background, because there is a background that we have to interpret these things in, the original readers, they, they could call these things up like that because they were all familiar with the Old Testament. I'm not, we're not as familiar. So let me tell you that the background of this is probably Numbers 15. And in that context, there is the punishment of physical death for willful sins. Okay? When you willfully reject God's grace through the, the Mosaic covenant, through the sacrificial system and the priesthood, and you kind of shake your fist at God, there is only left physical death for that, that person in God's covenant community. Okay? But it only talks about physical death in that passage. It doesn't talk about uh, you know, eternal loss of salvation or something like this. And then in that context, Hebrews is full of, of the language of eternity. And yet that word is not used for what's happening here, this judgment. It's never called eternal judgment in this context. So I think it's reasonable. And guys, there's going to be arguments on how different people interpret this. But I think it's reasonable to see this passage as referring to a true believer who experiences judgment in this life, even up to physical death. Did you know that a follower of Christ can be punished or disciplined with physical death because of sin and a willful rejection of God? Did you know that? Paul talks about that. He talks about it in 1 Corinthians 11 in the context of the communion passage we always read, right? The people are getting sick and dying and it's being associated with their sin. So can a believer be subject to judgment in this life? Yes. And can a believer lose rewards in the life to come in the kingdom of God? And the answer is yes. And Paul talks about that in First and Second Corinthians 2, that, that the worthless things will burn up, but, but you will be saved as one who, who passes through fire. So you'll have the smell of smoke on you. You'll get through in terms of salvation, but all that worthless stuff and the sin and all the other stuff will get burned up as we pass on into that, that, new, that new context uh, due to falling away from Christ. Uh, in verses 30 and 31, the author describes the terrifying reality of God's judgment. God takes our rejection of the sacrifice of his son very seriously. Please know this, like he is not, we have these sort of funny conceptions of God. God is loving and gracious and forgiving in a way that, that we can't even comprehend. The gospel tells us that. But, but the, the cross also tells us that God takes sin very seriously and he takes the rejection of the grace he extends to us in Jesus Christ very seriously. For those who, who have rejected God's grace in Christ without ever believing, the non-believer who rejects the gospel, then the only thing left is eternal separation from a holy God. And that is just in God's economy. Now, the person who has trusted in Christ, for those of us who are Christians, and yet in some sense we've fallen away from Christ, our unfaithfulness will be judged. Stace, can you hit that little black button on the right side of that thermostat? I made a mental note to do that. We're on the manual override this, this week, so hopefully we'll get that fixed by next week. Thanks for hanging in there. I know it gets hot. Praise the Lord. Uh, so for those of us who are Christians, and yet we've fallen away from Christ in some sense, our unfaithfulness will be judged, guys, both in this life and in the life to come. But as sons and daughters of God, as, as, as members of the household of God, that's not condemnation. That is discipline in this life. And like I said, loss of rewards in the kingdom 
Um, and again, we could do a whole series on that. So that's not, here's the important thing to know, that's not what the author expects for his original readers. Guys, that's not what I expect for you guys either. So let's go to a much more encouraging section. In verses 32 through 39, he doesn't end with this really heavy warning. Here's what he, he pivots to with this wonderful word, but. In verses 32 through 39, we see the promise of future rewards for faithfulness. And this, folks, is the hope that we have in Christ. Verse 32, but remember the former days when after being enlightened, you endured a great conflict of sufferings, partly by being made a public spectacle through reproaches and, and tribulations, and partly by becoming sharers with those who were so treated, seemingly other believers who were persecuted. They came alongside them in their suffering. For you showed sympathy to the prisoners and accepted joyfully the seizure of your property, knowing that you have for yourselves a better possession and a lasting one. Therefore, do not throw away your confidence, which has a great reward, for you have need of endurance, so that when you have done the will of God, guys, we do the will of God in this life. When this life is over and you have done the will of God, you may receive what was promised. For yet in a very little while, he who is coming will come and will not delay. And again, I think that's referring to Jesus, not Titus and the Roman armies in AD 70 when they destroyed Jerusalem. I think this is talking about Jesus coming back. Yet in a, a very little while, he who is coming will come and will not delay. But my righteous one shall live by faith. And if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. But, another one, I love that word in scripture, but we are not of those who shrink back to destruction, but of those who have faith to the preserving of our soul. In verses 32 to 34, the author addresses the present suffering of his readers. He reminds them of their past perseverance as evidence of the fact that they are faithful followers of Christ who will be rewarded when he returns. Guys, I forget all the time, all the ways God has shown up in my life and all the things that God has provided perseverance for and faithfulness in. And that's another reason we need each other is to remind each other, just like he's reminding them. Do you see the faithfulness that God has produced? Do you see the spiritual fruit that God has produced through your life as you've had faith? Be encouraged. We are forgetful in that. And you will be rewarded for that faithfulness when he returns. And they joyfully let go of their social status. They, they joyfully let go of their material stuff because they had hope in a better lasting possession in Christ. I don't need this status in the world's eyes. I don't need this stuff that's cluttering my life. Maybe it's not even cluttering. It's just, it's just stuff of this life. Those things will grow dim in the light of his grace, as the hymn says, right? In verses 35 to 39, our last verses, the author encourages them to remain confident and hopeful by reassuring them of the great reward that they will receive in the presence of Christ. It's like he wants them to picture standing before Jesus Christ at his return and being rewarded for their faithfulness. Guys, you and I need to picture that too. Or else this is all fanciful fairy tale stuff. And we're like, yeah, that's great. And then we go into our day-to-day -day life and we forget about the fact that we will stand before Jesus Christ, our Lord, and he will reward our faithfulness. By remaining confident, they can continue to live according to God's will, drawing near to God in faith, holding fast to their, their Christian confession, and loving and encouraging other Christians. To hang in there, folks, 
we must let go of earthly things and hold on to the hope that we have in Christ. Our Christian hope helps us to do that. It helps us to hold loosely. Kids, please pay attention to this because I see the commercials you guys are growing up on, okay? I grew up on them too in the 80s. They were just funnier back then, okay? Uh, The world teaches us to just hold tightly to stuff. Can you do this with your hands? Can you do that? Kiddos, you got to do it. You're my kids. Just do that. Go like this. That's what the world tells us to do with stuff and status and all these things. But you know what the gospel tells us? It tells us to hold loosely. Doesn't that feel better? That you, you, your fingers don't have to get pried off it. You know, you can just let open up. I love that. Uh, last week, I, I mentioned that one of my family members is going to donate a kidney to his friend. Those of you all that were here last week, uh, you heard that. Uh, uh, basically, his friend's dying of, of kidney failure, uh, and his friend needs a kidney. And so he said, hey, look, I got two. I'll give you one. And so uh, his surgery is scheduled for Tuesday, the 13th, and I, I sure would appreciate your prayers for that. Um, but I think this kidney donation, I was, I was thinking about it, I was like, man, this is a great illustration of holding loosely to the things in this life. Is there anything more dear than your organ? You know, and I'm not talking about like being an organ donor on your driver's license. I'm talking about like you're still alive and you're handing out organs to people, right? I love that illustration because it shows how we can hold loosely to things of this life. Clearly, my relative sees the benefit of sacrificing one of his only two kidneys to bless his friend, perhaps to bless him with many more years of life. I think that's beautiful. But, but when we realize that our lifetime, this physical life on earth, is but a fleeting vapor, as Scripture calls it, that this life is limited. This is not it. This is not eternity. We live this life. It's a front porch to eternity. But when we understand that, and we see this life in light of eternity, and, and that not only just eternity, but that we actually are going to be rewarded for the faithfulness in this life. You know, there's like two things you can't do in eternity. Share Jesus with someone that doesn't already know him and suffer for the cause of Christ and make sacrifices and suffer for the cause of Christ. Because we're not going to have pain and death and sin and war and poverty and hatred and all these things. That only happens in this life. So as we persevere in this life, then we can have eternal rewards await us in the life to come. And that, that realization, I think, makes it so much easier to make sacrifices for God's glory and for the good of others. Folks, listen to me. Even if that means sacrificing our very lives, just as Jesus Christ our Lord did. That's what it means to take up your cross and follow him. Because we very well might be put on it. Our hope in Christ keeps us living in light of our future rewards so that we can live faithfully for Christ in the present. We're not holding on so tightly to all this stuff in this world. If our hope is in preserving our physical lives, and we're all getting older, okay? I just turned 40 like a month ago, and like 40 comes with a weird backache, like right about here. Maybe that's we just need a new mattress. I don't know my sleep number. I don't know what it is, but I've got like a back thing going on, right? Now, I know people always say this when they turn 40, and Miss Laverne's like, really? Really? I think you called me a young whippersnapper once. And so I, I get it. But the, the point is, we're, none of us are getting younger. We're all facing physical maladies and ultimately physical death. But that's okay. We don't have to be afraid of that in Christ. 
But listen, if our hope in this life is to, to grab hold of our physical life or our wrinkle-free skin or our whatever else it is, our physical health, then, then we're not going to donate a kidney, okay? Because we're going to be so freaked out that maybe our kidney will go down one day. Maybe we'll need that second kidney or whatever, right? If our hope is in our bank account, then we won't be as generous as we might otherwise be. If our hope is in social status in the eyes of others, then we won't stand for Jesus when we're rejected and jeered for our faith. But if our hope is in Christ, then we can remain faithful even as we suffer and make sacrifices in this life. I think one of the beautiful things about today's passage is that it reminds us that perseverance in suffering actually strengthens our faith for further perseverance. Go figure. You want to be able to persevere better? Then start persevering. And James talks about it. Peter talks about it. Paul talks about it. Jesus talks about it. Like as we trust in him to persevere, he helps us to persevere better in the days ahead. So let's start now trusting in him, leaning on him, depending upon him, and we will see ourselves persevering much more easily. Maybe not easily is the word, but we will be much more prone to perseverance in the days ahead. If you have to make sacrifices, whether they're voluntary or involuntary, these can become, listen to this, and we're going to get into this with the rest of Hebrews, and this is such cool language. It's priestly worship language applied to Christians, but we can make sacrifices in this life, whether they're voluntary or they just happen to us, they can become acts of worship as we entrust those sacrifices to the Lord for his glory. Can God redeem the pain and the suffering? Can God redeem the deprivation? Can God redeem the hurt and the heartache? Yes. Not only that, but it can be used for his glory and the good of others. If we'll just take this stuff in our life and push it onto that altar and see it as a sacrifice made unto him, whether it was our choice or not, we can worship God in the midst of it. That's beautiful. You know, as a kid, I I sort of felt sad for the hang-in-there kitten, right? And I got a lot of chances to sit in the office and look at that poster, right? Uh, Don't ask me why. But I, I was there a lot. Uh, and I felt bad for him because nobody's up there in the clouds to help him out. And as a grown-up, l- listen, I feel sad for people who are struggling and feel like there's nobody up there to help them out. Y- you talk to them. You've experienced that. Your neighbors, your coworkers, your family members. Somebody's experiencing that. They don't think there's anybody up there to help them out. And their face looks like that. If not on the outside, on the inside. And that's why Jesus didn't save us and teleport us up to heaven. He saved us and he left us down here so that we could share our hope, the confidence of our hope in Christ with with hopeless, struggling people who are constantly tempted to give up and let go of their very lives, of their health, of their marriage, maybe even of their faith in Jesus Christ. And my prayer is that every waysider would both be encouraged and would be an encouragement to others so that we can all hang in there together with faith and hope in Jesus Christ until we go home to be with him or he comes back to get us. Next week, we're going to explore what some have called the Hall of Faith. We're going to look at the whole chapter, chapter 11 in Hebrews. It's phenomenal, but it includes just numerous examples from Scripture of others who have gone before us and modeled faithfulness and perseverance, and we get to see the fruit of their lives 
of faithfulness. And we're going to look at that next week. So let me pray for us.